It's Thursday, January 23rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hale. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Taylor Muckerman and David Hansen. Happy Thursday, guys. You hey. too, man. How have you been holding up under the cold? You Not guys, bad. You guys are you guys are from the, the South, basically. Yeah, North Carolina, both of us, I guess, right? Yeah. That, better that, better now that my apartment heating was fixed yesterday. <laughs> didn't realize all winter, I was like, gosh, I really don't think this heat works very well. The guy came and like shot a little laser at it. He was like, yeah, that's at 51 degrees up there. I was like, <laughs> oh my that's God. suboptimal. No wonder I'm wearing a wool sweater to bed every night. Uh, earnings Palooza rolls on. We will talk eBay. We will talk Netflix. We will dip into the full mailbag. But let's start with McDonald's. At this point, the market is... There's a lot of red out there, but yeah. you can't really lay that at McDonald's because shares are up slightly this morning after fourth quarter results. I don't know, Taylor. It's tough to get excited about a stock that did not move at all. In, no, it was about it did as not as move possible. at all in 2013. <laughs> right. Uh, revenue up two percent for the quarter and for the full fiscal year. It's such a behemoth, mm-hmm. and I and I don't own shares, but I look at McDonald's and I think, where can they possibly grow in a way that pays off for investors? Yeah, I'm struggling to figure that out as well. You know, they're trying different one-off items: the chicken wings. They brought the McRib back at the end of the year again. Uh, those items really aren't doing the same trick that they used to because so many other restaurants are trying those limited time offers, um, and they're more expensive. So you look at McDonald's. People don't go there to spend a lot of money, so charging a dollar a wing might not work that well. Um, so I'm worried about this company, A, because they're not growing internationally, which was what they talked about for so long. And to see that start to stagnate, just like the U.S. business, is kind of worrying. They do have a lot of plans to open, I think, like 1,600 new stores in 2014 and refurbish a 1,000, but I don't think that's going to cut it. I, I'm not a buyer on this stock, and especially... They talk about trying to attract upper and lower income households, and that worries me because they're competing with the Chipotles and Paneras of the world on the upper income side. And those people, I don't think, are really going to be entertained by a higher price McDonald's food item because the quality, I don't think, is keeping up with the higher price that they're demanding. So I just hope they don't shun the, the core group of – I mean, there are – the greater population – is what they're trying to target. And by raising prices, they're starting to kind of eliminate them from from the pool of customers. And I worry that if they try to go for the high and lower income families, then they're going to really struggle uh, on that middle ground. Yeah, David, once upon a time, the competition for McDonald's was essentially Burger King and Wendy's. Right. And now they have more competition and the competition itself is getting tougher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those are valid concerns in terms of where is the growth going to come from from for McDonald's? And my counter to that would be the stock is not priced for incredible growth. So I fair. think that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the flip side there. I look at McDonald's. Yes, they're not going to be growing like gangbusters and 10% earnings growth a year, but you're not paying for 10% earnings growth a year. You're getting a 3 plus percent dividend from this company that generates incredible cash flow. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, it, I should point out revenue for the fourth quarter. Over $7 billion. Not too bad. <laughs> right. So, And you talk about the competition and the ability to go international. The other companies aren't there yet. And if someone wants to step up and challenge the scale of McDonald's, I think McDonald's would be like, all right, let's go. Bring I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's an true. unmatched competitive advantage there. And yes, international is not great, but there aren't a lot of markets that are really growing like gangbusters right now. So I, I think they're playing the long game here. It's, I mean, it's not going to be flashy stuff for McDonald's, but I see the stock is relatively attractive and you get a nice dividend, you know, especially in a market that people are increasingly saying is overvalued, um, whether you believe that or not. 
uh, I don't know. I, I don't think it's an unattractive stock today. eBay's fourth quarter profits were higher than a year ago, but I think it's fair to say the story with eBay today is not really what they did in the fourth nope, quarter. Not at all. It is Carl Icahn once again coming from out of his cave to demand <laughs> <laughs> to dem- to bang the table and demand something of a publicly traded company. And in this case, it is that eBay spin off PayPal into its own separate standalone company. Not a particularly new idea. I guess, David, the thing that surprises me is that unlike Apple, where Carl Icahn has been banging the table and trying to get them to have a massive share buyback, and Carl Icahn owes, owns a pretty decent percentage of stock. Do I have this right, that he owns less than 1% mm-hmm. of eBay stock? Yeah, right. I think 0.8%. <laughs> so... I guess if I'm eBay, I want to say, where do you get off? What? Who are you? <laughs> One person that could say, "Who are you?" to Carl Icahn would be eBay right now. Yeah, I think you. I think that was an interesting point. You were like, not necessarily a new idea. It seems like Icahn's ideas are increasingly becoming not a new idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at Herbalife. Agman came out with a short, and then Icahn was like, "Oh, I'm going long on that." Uh, and then you see Apple Einhorn came out and was like, "You guys should do buybacks." And then Icahn was like. Yeah, yeah, let's do, you let's do, do an even bigger buyback. And, and yeah. You talk about eBay, the the PayPal spinoff has been a story for years. And it's not like this is some out-of-the-blue thought that Icon thought of as a genius. Um, it makes sense. It probably will eventually happen just because the payments business is growing so fast and kind of the euphoria around payments right now across the, the market. PayPal as a standalone would probably consist of a pretty generous market multiple if that was a standalone business. So it makes sense, but it also makes sense for these two entities to be together for the time being. So it's, it's a fine proposal. It's probably not going to happen. Uh, so I, I would focus on eBay as a whole right now if you're interested in the company. Look at the marketplace. Look at PayPal. You still got to look at them together. So the value proposition for eBay as they look at their different businesses, their marketplace business, their PayPal business, right now they're looking at it saying, no, for now it makes sense to keep it in-house. It's more valuable. But to your point about the payments industry growing mm-hmm. two, three, maybe five years down the line, it's not unreasonable to expect that the management of eBay at that time says, well, now we're at the point where we can create even greater value by mm-hmm. spinning this off. Yeah, that, that's definitely possible, and that that's probably what will happen. And they want to keep it in there because the eBay enterprise business, which is pretty small of them working with kind of independent retailers, they are, I don't want to say forcing it down their throat, but they you have to use PayPal with that service They're forcing there. it down their throat. So they're kind of forcing <laughs> it down their throat, uh, which you could argue that, okay, that's not the best thing in the long run because they're forcing them to use it, but I mean – Maybe it'll work. So they're saying, we're going to hold on to it now. Maybe we can get some traction with this and grow it even further. So I'm with eBay here. I don't think you should jump just because Carl Icahn says jump. No, yeah. I think this host-parasite relationship they have is working pretty well right now, (laughs) where PayPal does learn a lot from eBay's history and their their online e-commerce marketplace. I mean, there's a tremendous share of knowledge there. And I think for at least a couple more years, that's very beneficial, especially the way they're growing in mobile. They said 88% growth in mobile commerce. So that's huge. And they're one of the few companies that has really grasped mobile to that degree. And I think they've got a great advantage in PayPal is a big reason because of that. Mm-hmm. I was laughing because I thought you were referring to the relationship between eBay and Carl Icahn. <laughs> Maybe one day. but <laughs> You can always email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. 
timely question from Dave in Riverside, California. When a company does a spinoff of some portion of the business, like the upcoming National Oil Well Varco spinoff, are shareholders awarded shares in the new company, or do the new company shares have to be purchased? I'm trying to get a handle on how this unlocks value for shareholders. Let's whether it's National Oil Well Varco or eBay. Taylor, what's the answer here? How does it? How does it play out for investors? Generally, you're going to get shares because it is a tax incentivized uh, proposition by the the parent company to spin off a company that they think is either undervalued um, or either is holding the overall business back, undervalued, or is grown to the point where it could be a standalone business, which is the exact case of National Oil of Arco's distribution business. Um, Basically, they have to give away 80% of the shares to their current equity holders in order to avoid capital gains on that spin off. So, um, yeah, generally you are going to get the shares. Um, you're going to remain holders of some of the shares of the parent company and then an equitable distribution um, on the shares of uh, the subsidiary that they're spinning off. So as an eBay shareholder at some point, possibly in the mm-hmm. next five years or so, if I'm still holding those shares and they spin off PayPal, I'll have shares of both. Right. Basically, what you have to think about is why is the company spinning it off? If they're spinning it off because it's a struggling business, you're going to be stuck with <laughs> shares of a company that might not be operating very optimally. I think back to Darden spin- possibly spinning off Red Lobster. If I'm a Darden shareholder, I'm a little worried about that, although you are going to have access to the higher growth opportunities that they – so you're going to have two shares. Maybe you could sell them in the open market um, really quickly, but uh, you just have to decide why the company is spinning off uh, said organization. We got – a great response and a great many responses to our conversation yesterday about train songs uh, from Grant Tunkel, uh, or Tunkel, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. He writes, I'm partial to I Know You Rider by the Grateful Dead. Lyrics include, I wish I was a headlight on a northbound train. From Bensie Abraham, two great train songs from Bruce Springsteen, Downbound Train and Land of Hopes and Dreams. From Bill Velasquez in Albuquerque, which he refers to as home of the cheap bowl game. Train songs are not complete without the ballad of John Henry's Hammer. That is a classic. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, uh, and from Johnny Grisdale, who writes, any discussion of great train songs has to at least mention Wabash Cannonball, which is a song I'd never heard of, and he helpfully included a Wikipedia entry. The Carter family made one of the first recordings of the song in 1929, though it was not released until 1932. Another popular version was recorded by Roy Acuff in 1936. The Acuff version is one of one of the fewer than 40 all-time singles to have sold 10 million or more fiscal copies wow. worldwide. That's, Good for them. That's a... That's a nice accolade. Gotta love Wikipedia coming in the clutch there no with kidding. those stats. Strong. Where do they get that stuff? Strong. <laughs> Being from North Carolina, you can't dismiss Wagon Wheel Ooh. and Old Crow Medicine Show. There you go. All right. Keep the emails That's my coming. Radio at fool.com. Finally today in the earnings world, Netflix up more than 16% this morning. Strong fourth quarter results. They added 2.3 million streaming subscribers Boy, if you thought this company was dead when the stock was at $50 a share, uh, you're wrong. You were wrong. <laughs> you're kicking yourself right now, much like Carl Icahn is for selling his $800 million uh, to a nice profit, but yeah, his son's laughing all the way to the bank right now. How great was this quarter? Is it, is it that great? Is it, is it up 16% great? Apparently it is. I mean, my favorite story about Netflix came from just last December, a month ago, when a sell-side analyst just said, I'm going to stop covering Netflix. 
my model doesn't make sense anymore. I, I can't, I don't wrap my head around this valuation and I'm kind of in the same boat. I just, I personally can't get my head around value, trying to value Netflix, which for some investors that like to value things and have a number that's going to scare them off for some people who are visionaries and see the future, which there are, then they like Netflix. But for me, I can't get my head around. Was it a good quarter? Maybe. I don't know. The market seems to like it, but it's really hard for me to say, okay, does this mean that Netflix is now fairly valued? Will it still double in the next year? I just don't know. I can't get my head around it. On a subscriber basis, they had a very good quarter. They added a couple million net subscribers, which is what a lot of people do look at. Margins were hurt a little bit, but they're trying to expand. So um, I think that was kind of brushed aside. Uh, they're talking a huge, aggressive European expansion. Whether or not it works the second time around is, is going to be a big story to follow with this company. Um, I think that they probably learned a lot from the first failure um, expanding abroad. So I expect them to do great things over there. It's a natural extension of the U.S. market. A lot of English-speaking people over there. Um, and just to think that during peak internet times, Netflix controls 30% of all internet usage is pretty mind-boggling. Um, so you have to you have to wonder about that. Um, when you talk about net neutrality, that's the only drawback I see in the stock right now. Aside from some pe- people trying to compete, they just have such a large customer base that I think that they've got a pretty nice stranglehold on the whole thing. Yeah, one of the things I think you have to say about because I, I thank you for reminding me, David, of that of that analyst because that was that was for me anyway simultaneously funny, but also I totally appreciated. Mm-hmm. The candor yeah, of an honestly, analyst just yeah. come out and saying, uh, you know, as we say in this room from time to time about a given industry, you know what? I don't really look at stocks in that industry because mm-hmm. that's not really my area of expertise. I think it's perfectly valid for an analyst to come out and say, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm done with this one. But whatever you think about the business and its prospects, I think you do have to give credit to Reed Hastings and his team for their the way they have learned totally uh, over the past few years, uh, I think there were plenty of people who thought they're not going to get a second chance, certainly when the stock went from 300 down to 50, and they botched the pricing rollout and the whole Quickster debacle. They now probably ha- they do have that second opportunity. I think they, they, the next time that they look to increase prices, they're probably going to do it in a much more deft manner. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Taylor, yes, the initial rollout in Europe was not <laughs> – was neither smooth nor successful, <laughs> but they do get a second chance yep. at that, and and uh, so I. Uh, Thankfully for Europe, because they're yes, exactly they're in for a treat. Uh, as we wrap up and as we head into the weekend, and particularly where we live, and for people listening in the Northeast or frankly anywhere where it's really cold, and you're going to be spending time indoors this mm-hmm. weekend since it's not the Super Bowl. How about a movie recommendation or or a viewing recommendation? It doesn't have to be on Netflix, but just something you've seen recently that you would recommend for our listeners. Well, I went back to the well the other day and watched The Talented Mr. Ripley on Netflix. Um, great movie. Uh, I forgot how much I liked it. So Matt Damon. Yeah, that young Matt Damon. Young uh, Matt Damon. With yeah. uh, Jude Law and... Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yep, Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's a pretty nice cast and young in their career, so I, I highly recommend that, that movie from the viewing pleasure of your home on a cold day. David? Also got a Netflix one. This is a documentary for all the people that just love a crazy Saturday night. Uh, Going with Hero Dreams of Sushi, and it's spelled J-I-R-O. It's a documentary about this guy in Japan who's, I think, 90 years old, and he runs the most expensive restaurant, like, per what you get in the world. You get a little tiny piece of sushi, and it's like $300. Um, (laughs) 
it's crazy. Uh, and it's you, you have to call like a year in advance to get reservations or something crazy. But it documents this guy. He's just given his entire life to making the world's yep. best sushi. Um, and he's healthy and 90-something years old, still working every day. So it's a really interesting movie. Master all- of his craft. Yep. I'm also going with a documentary. I don't know if this is on Netflix or not. Uh, I know it's on Hulu because that's where I watch it. And it's... Harvard BTL 2929 about the the classic football game between Harvard and Yale in the late 1960s where Yale and it's laughable to think about this now but Yale was one of the top 10 teams in the country they were heavily favored and Harvard had this miracle comeback and it's one of those movies I guess like Captain Phillips or Argo or Miracle about the 1980 uh, Olympic hockey game, even though you know the ending, even <laughs> though it's right there in the title, Harvard VTL 29-29, uh, even though you know the game ends in a tie, it is still riveting to watch the game play out. And a uh, little cameo by, not even a cameo, one of the people interviewed, Tommy Lee Jones, That's the right. actor who was an offensive lineman on the football team for wow. Harvard. So, What does that say about the state of affairs of new movies that we all just gave two documentaries <laughs> and a movie from 1999? Either they're not good or we're incredibly lame. <laughs> we, it's one of the two. <laughs> we, we, are, we are, though, in that part of the calendar where typically January, uh, February, not, true, a lot, yeah. not a lot of great movies come out not at so the beginning action. of the year, historically. So, all right, Taylor Markerman, David Hansen, guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Monday.